Father, we thank you tonight that you are with us. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word through church history, the events that have already taken place. God, we ask that you would help us to learn, to grow, um, Lord, to have deeper trust in you and a greater appreciation for how your grace is at work through very, very imperfect people. And Lord, I pray that our lives would be marked by holiness, gratefulness, appreciation, and that our growth would be increased because we understand uh, the things that came before us and the way that history has unfolded. Lord, help me to communicate well and help us to hear what we should, and it's in Jesus' name we ask this, amen. So there's a lot of information in front of you. Again, I, I used an outline that was provided on SlideShare um, that really uh, kind of makes this lesson presentable and, and chops it up into pieces, and it's something you can use and re reference back to for all of our students in the room that are either in college or in high school or in some sort of school, you might find that some of this information is useful if you have to write a report or uh, if you needed something as reference material. So um, hang on to these. So th this chapter, chapter five, um, that deals with, um, deals with uh, the coronation of Charlemagne, uh, Ken asked me to address something immediately, and I will. Uh, Charlemagne is Charles the Great. Um, couple things not in the book that I was listening to a podcast, and uh, there is some dispute over how tall he was, but um, anywhere from six foot four to seven feet tall. Uh, the reason that is significant is nobody was that tall during this time period. So even if we go on the low end estimate uh, of even if he was even if he was my size, he would have looked like, at 6'2", he would have looked like an absolute monster. Uh, just bigger, uh, he had white hair starting in his 20s, so he just had an appearance of regality. He looked the part. Um, so that was just something I found really interesting. He was also intelligent, he was a scholar, uh, he was a warrior, he was a lot of things that you would look for in a king. So. Charlemagne represents something uh, really important. His, his reign um, is not the most significant of emperors uh, in the Roman Empire. However, what is significant, what the point of, uh, of this chapter is, is that it signifies something larger at work, and that's what we're going to talk about. So we're going we're gonna to go ahead and start, and we're going to go through these slides um, take notes, and we can ask questions as we go. So slide number one, um, the way that this happened, Christmas Day, it's AD 800. Uh, he's in St. Peter's Church, Charlemagne, uh, in Rome. And Pope Leto uh, crowns him king of the empire or emperor. Uh, and so here in the slide, the church crowned the state beginning centuries-long era of Western Europe, or what you would call Christendom. Has anybody heard the phrase Christendom? It means Christ's kingdom. And this, this whole lesson is going to be about how that, how that was, came about. A lot of the movies of the medieval period, 
a lot of the um, stuff that we've heard about comes out of the era immediately following 8800 and Charlemagne. It, it comes out of this, this basic area. Um, at, when we get to the end of the lesson, we'll really hammer that home. So next, next page in your notes, the historical background circumstances that led up to this. Frankish kings, the modern uh, France area, had a 50-year history of cooperation with the papacy or the popes. King Charles was in Rome in the summer of 800 to help vindicate Pope Leo III from charges of corruption. That's why he was there at St. Peter's on Christmas Day and praying. And when you read the book, he gets up from the prayers and the Pope walks over and puts the crown on his head and, and, every, and they all uh, say this in unison that he's the emperor three times, the people there, and, and that was kind of this pomp and circumstance around uh, the crowning of, of Charlemagne. Charles, or Charlemagne, was lingering in Rome awaiting better weather to travel home at the end of the service that day. Oh, he rose from the... I already said this, but I got ahead of myself. Uh, he, he gets up from praying at the tomb of St. Peter. Pope Leo advances and gives him the crown, and all the Roman people rose at once and shout three times. And that was the beginning. So... To understand why this is important or how we got here, we're going we're gonna to scooch back and we're going to try to explain how did we get to a place where a pope, Leo III, was in a position to put a crown on the head of an emperor. How did we get there? How did we get to where we have popes? Um, if you've been paying attention... There was not a pope at the Council of Nicaea. Now, the Catholic Church would argue that there was, but there wasn't. And remember, we talked about that they sent two uh, other bishops from Rome, not even the Bishop of Rome, to the Council of Nicaea. And Rome has always been playing this important role because of the political um, and historical significance of Rome. But uh, the papacy, the the popes, it's a development over time. And so that is what we're going to look at now. How did we get to where we have a pope where there's this central figure in the church? And there is no denying, by the way, as Protestants, there is absolutely no denying that there were popes and that the church was unified under them for the majority of Christian history. Okay, There isn't a way for us to deny that. It, it doesn't mean that it was right, but there's no way for us to deny that is the way that it worked. Um, so let's look at this. The etymology, um, the etymology of the word pope, you guys know etymology is the study of language. How did words get to what they are? Um, if I look at Gen Z slang, it's really interesting. Sometimes I've asked Abby to really explain to me, how did we get to this place where you're using this word in this way? There is a journey the word takes Trying to think of one off the top of my head uh, that you guys use. Yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna mention we're not gonna do that one. Uh, there's several of them, but there's a journey that the word takes um, and to get where it means a specific thing. So here's the journey that we take for the word pope. It's from the Greek as papus. It's any high church official, but in Latin, 
Papa, or I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right, it could be Papa, a variety of respectable church authorities, strict use of the word Pope for the Bishop of Rome. Uh, that starts with Leo the Great in 440 through 461. But by the thousands, when we get into the, uh, uh, the triple digits, no one is referred to as Pope except the Bishop of Rome. Now, Leo the Great, you guys remember um, a couple weeks ago, uh, the Council of Chalcedon, how important he was. He wrote the Tome, T-O-M-E, arguing about um, the two natures of Christ, and we spent time talking about that. And so the, 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 ascendancy, the ascendancy of Roman uh, bishops being really important has gradually been going on. If, if you were to jump back in time to uh, even the time of Leo the Great and talk about the Pope, they might kind of know what you mean, but they would not think of it the same way as they would 500 years later. There, there's a gradual change that's taking place, and that's what uh, Mark Noel is outlining uh, in this chapter. Let's look at the rise of the Roman bishops' influence and where we get the Get, get this. Clement, uh, he was the fourth Roman bishop. He wrote a letter to the Corinthian church in uh, AD 96. Clement was a contemporary of the Apostle John. This letter is known today as First Clement. I've read First Clement. It's actually really interesting. It's got a lot of Pauline echoes uh, you hear in it. Um, but it was, it was not regarded as Scripture because, one, Clement was not an apostle, um, and two, uh, it was just really a, it was a summation, or a sim, it was very similar in tone to some of the other letters um, that uh, are in, in Scripture in the New Testament. Um, over the next several centuries, bishops of Rome developed a commendable track record of responding to calls to refute difficult heresies, so here's one of the reasons why the bishop at Rome is important. Everybody is looking to Rome as an important city because it's Rome. Everybody's looking there, and Peter spends time there. Paul spends time there. He writes a lot of the epistles from there. So Rome is geographically important. It's politically important. Um, in the late 100s, Pope Victor set an agreed-upon date for Easter, that was a big deal. That doesn't sound like a big deal. That was a big, gigantic deal. You're going to find out more about that in the Great Schism or Schism uh, next week between the East and the West. It was a big deal. Uh, a lot of things that we don't even think about. This was this was an example of that. In 385, the Pope sent the first official authoritative letter in response to another bishop's inquiry. So. Mark Knoll's just outlining some moments in the history of the church where the, the guy that was the bishop at Rome begins to be viewed as more important. By the 300s, it was clear that the power of the Roman bishop had much to do with Rome's political centrality. After the empire, and that's important, the Roman bishop is becoming really important uh, and increasingly so in the minds of people and the church. And that is also tied in with Rome's increasing political power and centrality. After the empire's capital moved to Constantinople, Rome's waning political influence actually magnifies 
the prestige of the bishops. People are kind of hanging on to the glory days, so to speak, uh, of Rome. The importance of Rome in the New Testament was exploited by the Roman bishops. You can tell that we are Protestants um, because the Catholic Church teaching this lesson would not have used the word exploited, I don't believe. Um, Pope Leo, the first influence at the Council of Chalcedon, we've already talked about that a little bit. So all that we're trying to do is show that the reason the, the Pope became what we know the Pope as today, it wasn't instantaneous, it was gradual, and there were events and circumstances that led to it. You just cannot, um, you can't discount how important it is, really in all of history, that you are in an area that already has influence. Um, and Rome was a place that had massive influence, and that's why the bishop there was really important. And then we had some really intelligent bishops, like Leo that was there, uh, the, the Great, and Gregory the Great, uh, these guys that did so many good things and, and fought so well against heresies. More and more, they are, you look to the leadership of that area, and that is what happened in, in the early church. So we're still several hundred years before Charlemagne. You go to the next one, uh, Pope Gelsius' theory. He was uh, the Pope from 492 to 496. Um, he really made a, this letter he wrote defining ecclesiastical authority. What's ecclesiastical mean? They want to throw out a definition. Church, government. How does the church function? What is the government structure of the church? And so that was a big deal as you're trying to uh, come to a conclusion on various biblical doctrines. Who gets to say that we made the final decision? And so ecclesiastical authority and power and the way that it worked was really important. So he wrote a really important and influential letter that basically says there's two powers that rule the world. There's a spiritual power, which is represented by the Pope, <laughs> and then there's secular power. And if the two come to loggerheads, the spiritual power, a.k.a. the Pope, a.k.a. me, uh, that's the one who wins. Now listen, we're going to get to a place where, and they would, Pope, uh, however you say his name correctly, Galatius, sounds like a Jedi, doesn't it? Um, uh this, this particular pope would never have dreamed uh, that in the future there will be emperors made to wait outside in the snow begging to come in to receive the forgiveness of the pope. Right? That, that's where we're headed, but he would not have known that's how powerful that it was going to become. All right. Gregory the Great, who is, truly, this guy was great. Um, He's around 590 to 610. He, you'll see it says the summit of papal influence, but or papal influence, but really this is early, early papal influence because the influence actually increases and grows. Um, before he ever became a pope, he founded monasteries. We mentioned him uh, last time in the monastic spread of mon uh, monasteries all over the place. He was influential in that. 
He joined a monastery. He was known for his holiness, his purity, his sanctity. He was a church diplomat. Um, but then when he became pope, uh, he did all kinds of things. Uh, supervised Roman defenses against the Lombard attackers. Those are what we would might call Greek or not Greeks, but Germans. Negotiated with Roman uh, the Roman emperors and the Roman emperor in Constantinople. He fixed a lot in the church finances. He reorganized boundaries and responsibilities of Western dioceses. If you hear what your you hear what kind of leader he was, he was a organized, pragmatic spiritual, humble leader. He's really the kind of guy that if you're going to have somebody in charge, is the kind you want in charge. And Gregory did a lot to further the influence of, of the idea of the Pope. Um, here's what he did, and here's where his influence is really felt, ecclesiastically or church-wise, passionate about the Bible. Uh, reformed worship. He he introduced some things into the worship of the church. Expositional writings studied beyond the Middle Ages. People still look at what his exposition on Scripture and his exegesis had a very specific method that's still used, literal, mystical, moral, and it really set a standard for if your exegesis is, what does the Scripture say? What does it mean? We get into what it says in the Greek, or for them it would have been Latin, but what does it mean? How does it apply to us? He was really instrumental in establishing a standard, and that standard is the literal, the mystic, and the moral that you find out of Scripture. Um, if you've heard of Gregorian chants, how many of you have heard of Gregorian chants? This is the guy they're named after. Pope Gregory the Great. They say he was, in some of the stuff uh, read, he preached the gospel. Not all these guys, like we get this thing in our head where these guys were all corrupt. No, they weren't. Pope Gregory was uh, the real deal. He preached the gospel and um, really revolutionized the European missionary strategy, and that had a lot to do with what we talked about last week with the, the way that they would go in the communities, establish monasteries, uh, and, and get locals introduced to the gospel. Um, and you see specifically, Mark Knoll points out that he remained humble. He was not arrogant. He did not have uh, power going to his head. When they wanted to call him the universal patriarch, he changed that and said, no, I want you to refer to me as a servant of the servants of God. And that title is what is used by the popes to this day. So that is still being used today. Now, listen. Every time a politician runs for office, they say, rightfully, that their office is meant to serve the people, right? Have you heard this every four years? Um, we are giggling and laughing because we know what they really mean is, Please elect me so I can run your life as a politician. That's what they really mean, and that's why we need to be praying for them. So uh, Pope Gregory said that he was a servant of servants, and he probably meant it. But that doesn't mean that every pope that comes after using that title means it. 
So I, on one hand, I want you to know not all uh, people in this period and all popes were corrupt. At the same time, I want you to know there absolutely were, and uh, history doesn't even attempt to really deny it, uh, there were some horrific abuses that are right around the corner as this influence grows. In fact, Martin Ole doesn't talk about it that I'm aware of in this book, but there's a period right after Charlemagne referred to as the pornocracy. I think that can be self-explanatory. Um, it's about a 150-year period of just utter debauchery and corruption. We'll probably touch on that a little bit next week uh, because we're getting we're in that era. But that that term, I believe, was coined by the church historian Philip Schaff, who called it the pornocracy. That is just how horrific it was. Okay. This this next slide, the importance of Charlemagne's coronation by Pope. It just kind of is inserted here after after we've discussed the rise of the papacy or the papacy. Appalachia, Appalachia, I get it. Um, this slide is inserted because, because it's important to just stop for a second. The importance of Charlemagne's coronation by the Pope when, on Christmas Day when he's crowned emperor, it's not because it represents the height of papal power because it's still growing. It's not because it represents papal power exerting its influence over the height of political power because that's still going to be growing. But what, what we are really getting at is that it represents a strategic alliance between the papacy's growing influence and the political power's growing influence. In other words, the pope is coming into its own kind of power, and it really kind of culminates there at Charlemagne it, for the first time, where the pope is in a position, the bishop of Rome, the pope, is in a place where he can say, I have the authority to crown you as king. That's, that's where all this is headed. So that's just a reminder of what this lesson's really about because we're going to go to the next slide and now we're talking about Islam. But there's a reason we're talking about Islam because you can't talk about how important Charlemagne was unless you understand the rise of Islam and what happened that caused the Roman Empire to be, if you were looking at it on a map, just spread out uh, in a central sense across the Mediterranean area from, from Italy uh, all the way over towards the east in this area uh, on a map, and it kind of gets, the Roman Empire gets pushed up like this to the northern areas. And the reason that happens is because of Islam. Islam is founded by the prophet Muhammad, in uh, around 620, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, converted by 634, and then they start using the sword and spread east and west. So there was, um, this is a really brief way to describe this. By the early 8th century, Muslims controlled uh, in the east Syria, Palestine, and Persia, in the west Egypt, Carthage, North Africa, and Spain. The spread of Islam, on the next slide, eastward over Egypt and North Africa was made easier because the church was weak in those areas. This happens to this day. You know that the, the seven letters in Revelation, the geography of those churches, for the church of Laodicea and Sardis and 
all, all those, when you read them, that's Turkey, which is almost 100% Muslim. How did that happen? Because churches and the Christians in those churches became nominal. They became Christian in name only. Um, they got distracted by the world, and they faded into obscurity. They left a vacuum of spiritual hunger because people that knew there was something real have had several decades of just this wishy-washy nothingness. And then in swoops, somebody with passion and vigor and intellectual discipline, and the early is, uh, push of Islam was that. That's also true. Um, so it's important for us to recognize that America began, uh, really flourished under a lot of Christian ideals and a lot of Christianity. And we are abandoning it left and right. So that's just, and, and the, big, the big thing today is, is not the spread of Islam in, in the Western world. It's the spread of secular humanism, atheism, indifference, apathy, spirituality that has no connection to anything. Do what you like. Feel good about it as you go. So this is, to me, this is relevant to us. The spread of Islam accelerated the East-West division of Christianity, making communications much more difficult. Something that was going on and we're going to talk about in detail next week, is the division that existed between the western part of the empire and the eastern part of the empire and the churches there. And the, and if you, the very first true church split that happens in Christianity is the split uh, that creates Greek Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, uh, all the uh, those Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, if you've ever wondered why they kind of look like they're Catholic, but they're not, sometimes called Popeless Catholics. Um, it's this. We're going to talk about that next week. But this, the the expansion of Islam, exacerbates that. It makes it it makes that division worse. Um, it also causes the papacy's attention from the east to be turned to the north. So they're going to give up on, and this is what I was talking about, the idea of the Mediterranean Roman Empire, that whole stretch of uh, Greece and the Mediterranean Sea and that whole area there, um, and it starts shifting up to the north in Europe. That brings us to Charles Martel, also called Charles the Great, I believe, and known as the Hammer. He was Charlemagne's grandpa. Why was he considered the savior of, the, of Christian Europe? Because in, 17, or in 732, he stopped the spread of Islam into France at the Battle of Tours. That was the furthest into Europe that Islam went. And at the Battle of Tours, he stops them. So he's regarded as a hero. I believe that is in France. Um, in that... In the, in that uh, I'm seeing it in the map. I don't. He doesn't have the map here. But yes, the Battle of Tours. I believe it is France. Double check that. Um, 
The other thing he did, because a lot of these guys, they, they were smart, he initiated friendly approaches to the popes as if he were a leader of the Franks. He has a son, Pepin, which Mark Knoll doesn't mention, but he has a nickname, Pepin the Small. Uh, further develops that practice. And then Pepin has a son who, as we've already said, was really tall. Um, he inherits the alliances between the Pope and the Frank uh, uh, leaders, and that enters us into Charlemagne's era. He was, um, my understanding of this is, is that you would look at him more like a, I don't even know if it's the word king, but like he's a military leader of the Franks, and he's garnering the support of the, the popes. And so I don't know if he wasn't, the, he wasn't considered the king of the empire, the French, the early, early French. Anybody else have anything? And and I think the Franks are also mixed in with some other groups that are there. But I, I that that's the precursor to France. So by the time Charlemagne comes around, having already had several decades of friendliness with the popes, um, we already know what happens. He's crowned by the pope in AD 800. Um, his rule over Europe includes the Saxons in the north and east, Spanish in the west, Lombards, are the, uh, that's the German area in, in the south. He ruled more of Europe than anyone since the Roman Emperor Theodosius at the end of the 4th century. The church-state cooperation which existed since Constantine applied to Europe, creating Christendom. So now what really happens with Charlemagne is the marriage of power between the church and the state, which has already been going on, started back at Nicaea with Constantine, but now it's really when you have a pope putting a crown on the head of someone and calling them the emperor, you have a totally new thing that has taken place. So here's this medieval period, as it's called, um, Attempt what it's attempting to do is put together church life, the sacred and the secular, and marry politics and the church together. So that's what this next slide is about. Integrates Christian world and life together, unified politics, social order, religious practice, economic relationships, um, Christianity that it really, uh, as the way it was being practiced at this time is is... Roman Catholicism, um, and it is protected by armies, by secular rulers. So one of the one of the interesting things about infant baptism is that it was also the census. How do we know how many people are in our in our town? We go to the church's baptismal records. That's how we know how many people are in the town because there wasn't a distinction between church and state. Um, Really, the pilgrims were escaping as a part of the Reformation. They were escaping what's really being developed here. 
the sacralism is what it's called, the, the, the marriage of church and state. And it, well, as we're going to see, there was an ideal, but it was not always lived up to. Here's Christendom's central convictions. Human beings corrupted by sin need salvation, which is accomplished by the merit of Christ, communicated through God's grace. God's saving grace comes through the sacraments in a social setting defined by the cooperation of church and state. You cannot get this grace if you do not get these sacraments. This is where there is a this is where Martin Luther eventually is going to say faith alone not works because this this system of sacraments is actually way more complicated than than we than we as Protestants are aware and it's way deeper um, and it's really interesting important and I would say wrong but this this is also theologically develops over time there's just no way to go into all of it um, let's look at some of the uh, the sacraments that were considered the ideal comprehensive life course this starts at baptism and ends at extreme unction where you where you're dead but these are I'm not gonna I don't have time to go through all of these but these uh, look these up if you want to to get an idea um, marriage is in there penances repentance confirmations when you're old enough um, to be confirmed into the church the, this is still followed and practiced today okay here's the view of the sacraments in this period of time and and the reason this is important is because Charlemagne has been crowned by the Pope we've got this marriage of of the church and the state, the sacraments of the church are a part of the society of life. That's why this is, that's why we're discussing this. Um, it exhibits the principles of the incarnation, Jesus becoming, uh, stepping into time, taking on flesh, whereby the most important spiritual realities were embodied in material form. I don't want some intellectual exercise, I need something I can touch. So that's transubstantiationism. Do you guys know what that is? The literal becoming of the bread of the body of Christ. Literal, literal, literal the body of Christ. He's present in the Eucharist. He's there literally. Not metaphorically, not figuratively, not spiritually. Literally. And that's why you need a priest who can perform the rites that are the sacerdotal priesthood that allows him to do some sort of mystical transformation when he prays and does what he does over the over the cup and over the bread, and it becomes the body of Christ, and that's why they're not allowed to let any of the wine go to waste. Uh, they drink it after the service. They do it to this day because it has been blessed. It's it is a it is sacred. It is holy, and they put such an emphasis into that. What Protestants have done really poorly is we've de-emphasized the importance of the of the supper of communion and some people we we do have a longing in our heart for a connection to Christ that is found in the supper and that's why we try to do communion more than once a month or whenever we feel like it um, in fact we eventually will probably wind up doing it every Sunday um, eventually but 
So Protestants reacted against transubstantiationism too much, in my opinion, and went away. Um, and there's there's a lot here, but these sacraments they really spoke to humans' need for something physical. And uh, having a priest and having a church that backed up what the power of these sacraments were was very powerful in the hearts and the minds of the people in the community. And not all of it was bad. Uh, it just it drifts off into a theologically bad, uh, especially when you can't get saved apart from the administration of these sacraments. Um, they do express the objective character of God's action on behalf of humanity. Receiving God's grace depended upon actually receiving the vehicle of that grace, which the sacraments, that's what they are, and not so much on how one felt about that transaction. The Latin ex opere operato translates from the work done in the sacraments. There is a whole lot on the ex opere operato, and there's a lot there, but we're not going to talk about it. Uh, the medieval view of sacraments reinforces uh, reinforce the essentially social structure of grace, the fact that Christ worked for his people together through the institutional church. Um, throughout the kingdom of northern Europe, the Roman Empire, that Charlemagne uh, represents the beginning of that, that period. The institutional church was the sole mediator of the sacraments and thus the sole mediator of God's grace for salvation. This is why Protestants originally could not go to heaven according to the Catholic Church. Because you can't have the sacraments and if you can't have the sacraments, you can't be saved. So Martin Luther and all your people are going to burn in hell because of what you've done. You have left your only security, which is the church. So that's where this is headed. That's where this thought process is going. Since the salvation of sinners is paramount, all spheres of life must bow to the church. So political leaders are going to have to cooperate. Education has to be compatible with the church. Economic structures have to support the church. Social order, ideals must imitate church patterns. So when you look at this period of history, you see that everybody considers themselves a Christian. Everybody is influenced by the church. Everybody, and in, in that is a part of history that we are very familiar with in the, the European history um, of the medieval period. It's what we think of a lot when we think of, uh, when I watch Monty Python's Quest for the Holy Grail, it's right smack dab in the middle of, of that period of time. <laughs> but, um, just the idea that everybody, everybody uh, was a Christian and everybody in, the, in Northern Europe was influenced by that. So for most of us in America, our ancestry, um, not all, because America is certainly a melting pot from everywhere else, but a lot of America, a lot of North America, uh, gets it, our history is tied directly back to this section of Europe. Um, so the church was foundational for everything. This all really got us kicked off with Charlemagne. Well, Charlemagne was kind of the culmination of that, and then it just kept going. Um, Christendom, a shattered ideal. It's kind of depressing the way this chapter ends. <laughs> um, political rulers, not keen on a subordinate position to the church. 
many revolted. There's going to be all kinds of conflicts. Institutional arms of the church, that's the monasteries, uh, the diocese, they were difficult to regulate. Many dignitaries rewarded with high ecclesiastical positions proved immoral or incompetent. Lord have mercy, is that going to prove itself to be true? No. Well, yes, so so there were, um, there's, we're talking about both. We're talking about um, there were dignitaries that were given positions within the church, cardinals or other positions that were influential because their family was such and such or they were wealthy. That that is a tale as old as time, and that they so they were given important positions in the church, um, and they weren't even Christians, really. They were just living their best life uh, in that just church. They paid money to the church, therefore you get to be somebody special. <clears throat> Uh, you get to be a, a bishop in this small little town. So they did have church, they were given church positions, um, and they didn't have any care in the world about living holy lives or knowing anything about the Bible. Um, that So you just got to think about it. If the church has become the kind of the anchor of the political life, the economic life, and the social life, then you've just opened the door for lots of corruption. On, on one hand, it's this ideal of this is going to be great. On the other hand, people with money and people with power get into positions in the church because we want more of their money and we need their influence to make these decisions because we want to do these things, and that's what happens. As a result, <clears throat> there's going to be a renaissance, which is a secular kind of revolt. Um, which it was actually helpful in a lot of ways. Uh, there's going to be something called the Protestant Reformation, uh, the modern uh, rise of modern nation states. We're going to get to these in later chapters. The Western atheism that develops, um, and then global Christianity outside the West, outside of Europe, outside of that area. So that's that's these are actually all going to be chapters later on in this book. Here's our last slide: a powerful legacy of Christendom, the ideal of the comprehensive presence of divine grace in all of life. That is a that's wonderful. Um, imagine if all of our government officials were truly influenced by the gospel. Truly. Well, that'd be great. They would not be talking about the Equality Act. Abortion would go away tonight. Think, I mean, think, if they were if truly influenced by the gospel, it would it the stuff that is antithetical to Christianity would go away. Our tax dollars would be used righteously. There'd, it would be it'd be wonderful. That's that's not the way historically it works, and that's not the way that it worked here. But that was the ideal. Uh, the harmonious cooperation between between rulers of church and between rulers of the state. That was an ideal that does exist on and off but it also doesn't, and we'll see more of that as we go. And the, the ultimate ideal is the kingdom of God coming from heaven to earth. 
In other words, we're going to do everything. This is the ideal of European medieval Christianity that began, really, really began to blossom at Charlemagne. And that marriage, when the Pope sticks that crown on his head, um, it really showed the reason that we got there is because of all the things that came before leading with the, pa- the papacy, Islam, dividing East and West. It, it really caused the shift to focus on the northern kingdoms, kind of keep Islam at bay over here. And uh, this whole new culture and society develops. Uh, and it's the medieval Catholic Church period in northern Europe. Um, so that is why this is a major turning point. Because a lot, this chapter to me was kind of a, in all these chapters, Ken mentioned that there's, I don't know if you get, what I get when I read this is, I'm like, there's like 12 other books I need to read to go into the details of each of these things. And and Mark Knoll is very clear at the beginning, that is exactly all that this book is purporting to do, is to just give glimpses into these major turning points in Christian history. And really, I think, I think I've said this almost every week, uh, or at least the last two weeks, there's a lot more for us to read and to learn about these periods of history. Um, and it's really valuable that, that we do that. There are a lot of other books. If you notice at the end of the chapters, he's got this thing called further reading. I, you know, I'm going to go back through here and get some of these books. I'm getting Philip Schaff's eight-volume work on church history. It's a good thing it's not expensive. Um, uh, but anyway, <laughs> there's there's a lot. Uh, there's this is almost like just giving you a glimpse. There's so much more here than what we're giving. So, okay, with that said, what questions? Kim? I remember... uh, I don't remember, unfortunately. The question is, what was the corruption that Pope Leo III was? Why was Charlemagne there? Defend, he was there in Rome to defend him. I don't remember if it was an illegitimacy as Pope or or what it was. I don't. I don't know that one. I think it's I think it's because as this lesson was looking at uh, a couple decades earlier his grandfather had already established good relationships with the popes his dad did it and then he was as well so they were kind of tied in that way um, and I think the idea of chapter five is to show how the state and the church were kind of doing this already. They were they were just growing closer and more entwined um, uh, over the over the pat <clears throat> from AD three twenty five and the Council of Nicaea on to this. So uh, you know four hundred and seventy years later, 
um, you have a pope crowning an emperor. It's I think that's the idea is that the church and state were growing closer together, <clears throat> forced closer together by the rise of Islam, um, and the growing understanding that there was a central figure for the church, which was the pope. Um, th those events just kind of naturally caused that to happen. Did you Google? What what was the answer on on Leo the Third? Adultery, unfit for office, perjury, lying. That's nothing compared to what you're going to find out about in the pornocracy. Good night almighty. Uh, yeah. So, I, when, I, when Augustine was alive, in the uh, in the fifth century, you know, the barbarians had started to come over the walls. Um, well, and that is why, and I should have mentioned this earlier. That's where this it begins to be called the Holy Roman Empire. That's where that phrase comes from. Um, it's not the empire that it was under Caesar Augustus and um, the Rome of the time of Jesus or the Rome even of, of the time of the Council of Nicaea because they moved, Constantine moved the capital over to Constantinople and there's, all, there's a lot happening, but Rome is weakening and weakening and weakening, so it's no longer what it was. What, do you have a date? That's the final fall of Rome is 1453. So, but it's been weakened and deteriorating and brittle. And that's why um, it gained, regained some of its influence and power when the church and Rome are kind of merged together through this Holy Roman Empire, beginning at Charlemagne. Um, and that continues on uh, for the next five, six, seven hundred years. Um, and the Reformation's going to come in there at the end of that. Asking questions, I just, unfortunately, uh, don't know all the answers. I think it was obviously, in the long run, terrible. Um, it was terrible because, uh, and that may, that's just, I'm going to just be honest, that is a very amateurish uh, view that I would have. I don't claim to be an expert historian, but it, it seems to me that um, there were a lot of really great people like Gregory that are interspersed through a lot of really crummy people. But whenever power is centralized, 
Uh, this is probably because I'm libertarian. But whenever power is centralized, it's always corrupted. Just always. Um, you just, and Thomas Jefferson said that really well and the framers of the Constitution, I mean, those guys were looking at this history saying, the reason we're going to make this Constitution is because stuff like this, um, that the more, and so even when a power, uh, even when the power is centralized, it doesn't matter where you're at. Uh, you get a certain personality type. You can see it in churches. Forget big government. You can see it in local bodies. Uh, you could see it with a PTA president. You have a, a corrupt, power-hungry, everybody's experienced for you that have not entered the workforce yet, you will one day experience when some guy that you work with who's a pretty okay coworker, are they're promoted and it turns them into tyrannical, horrible leaders. Anybody had that experience? I see a lot of head shaking. Uh, how did that happen? Well, that person was already like that. They just didn't have the power to go with it. Um, I specifically remember a guy that became a police officer, and I remember thinking, God help whoever he pulls over. It doesn't matter what the position is. It, you Human beings gravitate towards sinfulness. And if you give human beings power and centralize it to just a couple elite experts, then you wind up with power abuse. That is the way that it works. So uh, I am for spreading it out. I'm not against authority. I think we have to have them. Uh, I, but I like the idea of checks and balances. Um, we have elders meetings so that I'm not the only guy in the room saying this is what we're going to do. Um, the, uh, so in a church, you can see, I mean, there are churches even with, I don't want to mention his name, but some of you in here know exactly, but uh, somewhere out west, there was a guy that lost his pastorate because he was behind closed, he was a great Bible teacher, but he was horrific to his people, to his leaders behind closed doors. He, he wasn't sleeping around, and he wasn't stealing money. Those are normally what happens when church leaders fall apart. This guy was just a power monger. Uh, so that, that tendency of human nature um, is why having centralized power, I think, is dangerous. Too much centralized. There's got to be some checks and balances. So when the church and the state start working together, even though there's a lot of good that can be done and is done, it also <laughs> creates, uh, well, it creates problems. Yeah. Yeah. So the Bible, I think the Bible says that, you know, Paul appoints elders in churches. So he, he definitely believes in leaders. There's definitely uh, leadership that should be followed. Um, there's, there's definite authority we are to submit to. According to Romans chapter 13, we're supposed to be praying for and submitting to government authorities, no matter how corrupt they are. I mean, Paul wrote that at a time when some of those Roman emperors were just absolutely awful. Um, uh, but 
the danger is corrupted human beings centralizing the power and uh, doing corrupt things. So I'm not in favor of I'm not in favor of the church uh, marrying up to the state because of that. Now, let me say something else. Um, I think the church does have a responsibility to speak prophetically, as it were, the truth of God's word in a way that the state is held accountable to the reality that they're answerable to God. When you read Romans 13, it says God's appointed them, they are his ministers, and if that is true, they are accountable to him. So even as Paul said, we need to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, um, I don't think that he also means that we do whatever leaders and authorities say. Whenever the leaders and authorities tell us to do things that contradict Scripture, uh, we have a higher authority that we're answering to. So um, that can get complicated, and it's probably a good thing for us to get more um, acquainted with biblically because we've just taken for granted easy-peasy living in America. Um, and that's not going to always be the case, probably. Did you have a question? Yes. Um, so when you were talking about they took records based on who'd been baptized, and everybody was just assumed to be Christian, mm -hmm. which is worse. Right. I, I don't think it's, I, th I would say it's more from human nature in general. I think that anytime a society is uh, Christianized, that it's a blessing up until just, and I, you can look at Israel and read the book of Judges as a, as kind of a primer on how this works. Um, whenever Israel was being oppressed, they cry out to God, they repent, they get serious, revival happens, God's deliverance happens, and then they enter into this period of peace and prosperity. And then the next generation, almost every single time, the kid, mom and dad fought for it, the kids grow up in the result of the fight, which is peace, and that's when they start wandering over here and looking at, ooh, look at that God, look at those idols. I want to marry that girl that's worshiping that God. I'll worship that God too. And that's what starts happening. And then they go back into the cycle of disobedience. And then they receive the judgment of God. And then they're oppressed. And then they cry out to God. And then God delivers them. I mean, it's just this cycle. And I think that is, I think that is what um, happens to the the. The American church has had it so easy that we have church growth consultants that make six figures a year that go around to other churches to tell them how that church should grow. And the growth strategies in those conferences, though they will tell you it's all about people getting saved, the growth strategies are really designed to prove to the community of Christians that you have better programs, you're more organized, you're better put together, it's going to be better for your kids here, it's going to be better for your marriage here. So it's the, 
it's a sales job uh, that our church is better than all the other churches. So why not come here? And when you, when we've we've been there, probably back to the '90s, uh, when the church growth seeker-sensitive movement really began to explode. Um, you don't talk about sin because it offends people. And seekers, you just got to slowly reel them in. And the way that we're going to attract them is, is the pastor's going to ride in on a Harley. Um, and he's gonna, or the pastor's going to come in on a, on a, uh, a trapeze wire. Or, or we're going to have bigger, more powerful explosions and pyrotechnics in the worship. We're going we're gonna, to, yeah, whatever the style is, whatever the lingo is, whatever we got to do to attract people, that's what we're going to do. And, and that's great, except Jesus is literally doing the opposite. Jesus gets all these crowds from healing people, and then he starts telling them things like, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have nothing to do with me. It is the worst church growth strategy ever. Um, he just absolutely... He gets a crowd and he tells them, uh, he, because he recognizes you're here for the miracles. That happened right after feeding the 5,000. He understood why they were there. He's like, your heart is not repentant. You're not a follower of me. You're interested in the show. So then he says really difficult things. And I don't think that it's my job to try to say as harshly as I can how horribly wretched you all are as sinners. But I, I do feel, and I felt it yesterday, you know, during the, uh, the baptism service. I don't know who's watching. I don't know who's a part of that. I've got to share the reality of the gospel and that, that uh, it's not my job to make you feel good. Um, I want you to feel good, but I want you to arrive at feeling good because the scripture showed you who you are in Christ or showed you who Christ is or revealed that God is there with you. I want you to feel good because of what the Bible says, not because I'm going to make elaborate excuses for your lifestyle or your sin. And, and that is what changes every time in history. Whenever the church starts losing the gospel message, um, that's what you see happening. And, and so yeah, that you're asking me a question that I have a soapbox about this high on because it's so, uh, and it's in every culture. Um, it's happening in Africa. It's happening in Africa because Africa is probably in some places more Christian than America. In fact, I've been tempted. Uh, Vody Bakum, uh, I think it's is it Zambia or it starts with a Z. One of the African countries that starts with a Z. Uh, Zimbabwe. Um, the, uh, you, you hear him talk about it, the, the way the life is over there in terms of Christianity. Um, they have a Christian constitution. So now I sound like I'm talking out of the other side of my mouth, um, where they have this kind of marriage, but they are so far not following that pattern of resting on their laurels. But that will be the danger there. Uh, 20, 30, 40 years from now um, where people start just getting comfortable and lackadaisical. Um, so, 
the only cure for that is to just is to be aware of our need for grace and our be aware of our depravity outside of God's grace. That that honestly is the only thing. And it brings comfort too that his mercy is new every morning, but I need it every single morning. Um and I yeah, it's a big soapbox. Uh I'll keep rambling. No, 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 no. I, that's a, it's a good question. It's an important question. It is maybe the question for our culture in America. I think it's yes, because there are a lot of people. Many will say to me on that day, "Lord, Lord, did we not go to church, pay tithes, do this, do that?" Yeah, I'm a good person. Um, and you see our culture more and more will demand that you go with the culture. Um, and we, we can't. And that will have deeper and further reaching consequences. On that enlightening and cheerful note, let us pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you, uh, Lord, that you have been in charge of history from its beginning. Your word says that you declare the end of a thing from its beginning. You're not just aware of it passively. You are in charge of it. And you are culminating all of history in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are eagerly, hopefully, joyfully expecting Jesus to come back. And we cannot wait. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But while we're here, we thank you that you are helping us to live in this culture, and I pray, or especially in light of Brooke's question, God, I pray that we would be salt and light in this generation. Lord, help us to learn from church history. Help us to recognize that these pitfalls and these dangers exist everywhere. But by your grace and by your spirit, we are not going to be like those who turn back. We're going to be those who press on toward the goal, towards the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you, not by our strength, not by might or power, but by your spirit. We thank you for this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.